What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Elodie Briefer, who is an associate professor at the University of Copenhagen. What's going on, Elodie? How are you? Hi, I'm really good. Thanks. Fantastic. So I think, you know, the best way to start this interview is to is for you to kind of introduce yourself, what you're studying, and I mean, how you got interested in the field of uh, biology. So, yeah, so I, my main research area is the vocal communication. So how animals communicate, what do they tell each other, what can we find, which kind of information we can find in their uh, vocalizations. Um, and I started actually my PhD by working on birds and a very complex bird with a very complex song, which are called skylarks, um, and how they kind of um, make sequences out of small units to make something very complex. Um, and then I moved on to mammals and I've worked on goats and all kinds of other ungulates. Uh, mainly focusing on how they express emotions and how we can use the vocalizations to figure out about their uh, emotions. Um, and how did I fall into that? Uh, so I always worked, um, I mean, I always really liked animals when I was a child, so I always wanted to work on animals, but I didn't want to be vet and cut animals out and uh, and um, and see them in pain. I just wanted to observe them and see what they do. Uh, I was fascinated by their behavior. And then I uh, found out when I was a teenager, I found out about the field of ethology, which is the study of um, animal behavior, basically, especially in the wild. Um, and then I found a team in my university um, where I was studying in Paris, where uh, that was working on acoustics. So that's how I got into um, working on acoustic communication. And so, so you, you had some, some, a few studies. Um, and I'm wondering when, when you're saying you're using vocal communication in mammals and birds to understand how they, they use vocal signals to encode information, like how, are, how does one like study that? If you kind of take our listeners through how the, some of those studies were set up. So it really depends what you're studying, of course, but, uh, but the main thing would be um, going outside and, and recording them with a good quality microphone, for example, figuring out the context of production, in which context are they producing calls, what are the different factors around, um, and then going to the back to the office, um, plotting the sounds and analyzing them with some details acoustic software, so extracting all kinds of parameters and trying to see if we find which factor influences these parameters. Is it the context of production? Is it the identity of the individual, the region in which it, um, it's located, um, and other kinds of things that you can um, be interested in, you know, their emotions, for example. And, and now, on uh, kind of, you said you're using different regions, right, to, to study, and, and, and have you guys found um, a lot, like a myriad of differences, and let's say birds, same species of birds, correct? And are you finding different, like... I want to like dialects is the the, the best word That's that comes correct. to mind in in the different regions that you're studying. How like how big is the sample size? So yeah, that that's uh, most birds actually most songbirds have a dialect. So dialect would be producing different um, so these small units we call them syllables. So they would produ produce them in different orders. That's what you call the dialect. Um, and an accent would be producing the same unit, if you want, with different frequencies or different duration or different acoustic structure. So in, um, in Skylarks, that was actually the focus of my PhD. So looking at how different uh, Skylarks from different places 
um, organize their units differently. And I found out that actually when they are more than two kilometers apart, um, they do uh, have different sequences. And they use these sequences to recognize who's from the, re the dialect area and who's uh, what we call the stranger. So who's a neighbor and who's a stranger. Uh, because a, a stranger doesn't have a territory, at least they don't know of, so they, it's more of a threat than a neighbor. And so they usually also react more to the uh, song that they don't know, so a dialect that they don't know, than a neighboring dialect. And if you, if you mix these units around, uh, so if you change the sequence, then they don't recognize it anymore. So they have a very specific sequence that is the part of the dialect. Whoa, that is, that's fantastic. Now, is this just found in like, did have, primarily you're focused on skylarks? Did you, were you focused on any other types of bird species? And I guess even a, a, a more broad question would be, do you think that this is all over the animal kingdom? Um, so I haven't myself, but I, I have many uh, colleagues like bacosticians that work on all kinds of uh, bird species. And uh, this has been a field that has been um, studied a lot in the past hundred years, let's say. Um, and in all songbirds, I think we find dialects because they learn their songs. So songbirds are known to learn their uh, vocalizations when they grow up. So they will either learn from the from their, uh, the, the birds that are around them or move somewhere else and then learn from from the new uh, neighbors and then develop different uh, dialects, basically. So you find that in all songbirds, but also in other species. And um, for example, moving on to ungulates, which is what I studied afterwards, um, you don't find really uh, dialects because they have more simple vocalizations, like very short calls, but you find uh, accents. So in goats, we found that they do have accents. The goats that grow up in the same group will have different uh, acoustic structure than goats that, that grow up in different group. That's so, that's so crazy. I think that's awesome. Um, I mean, now, do you kind of feel comfortable saying that, I mean, especially songbirds, you think that they are communicating and, and passing on information, right? And, and like, to what, what degree of, of, you know, are they able to kind of communicate to each other? Because, all right, for example, I understand that crows or ravens are just, are super intelligent. Like they, they are, they'll outperform. I, I think toddlers maybe even in a note someone in the five or six range john maybe you might want to pull that up i feel like i might be talking on my ass a bit here but but to i was just wondering in, in in songbirds like how you know how intelligent are these animals just i, I know that's a broad question but you know i'm, I'm kind of crazy so i'm wondering you know and your you know if i could get your opinion on like how how much of this like, are they having conversations, kind of, is what I'm trying to ask, ask you. Uh, I mean, so far, what we what we can figure out about songbirds is that they're, at least the songs that they produce, mainly during the breeding season, uh, usually it's mostly the males, but also sometimes females, in, depending on the regions that sing. And they will usually sing to mark their territory and attract females. And from the evidence so far, it looks like the like the single units that they produce and the way they organize them mainly reflects their um, information about themselves. So their fitness, like how good of a male they are, uh, how large is their territory, maybe testosterone levels, their age, uh, 
who they learn the song from. So all kinds of things about themselves, but not necessarily about the context or like meaning per se, as we would um, call it in in, in uh, ourselves. So not about it. They don't have a different. If you want each unit or each song doesn't have a different function. The function is to attract the female. Um, so it's quite different from other species, for example, uh, meerkats or other species that um, will have a different call for each predator that comes around where it's this is more close to what you would call a word in human language. Okay. All right. So primarily in, in the... Oh, go ahead, John. What was that? Oh, so you are correct there. Uh, according to a study... Uh, called the Ravens Parallel Great Apes in Flexible Planning for Tool Use and Bartering. Uh, ravens are as are smarter than most human children. Uh, yeah. They they say that they that it's like an an analogous uh, intelligence for tool use uh, to great apes and humans. Yeah, those those birds are smart, and you know I know that cuttlefish as well are like very intelligent um i was at a um i don't know if you're familiar with dr andrew huberman um he studies uh the brain um and it's it's quite early here so my brain's not firing on all its all its cylinders but i i had to get you on here because time difference be damned but um uh basically uh one of the studies that that he had john you'll have to pull this up too because i'm I'm running on fumes here, but um, the cuttlefish were, they were feeding these, these cuttlefish every day at the uh, same doctors, and they were able to recognize these doctors. And they brought in um, a different uh, professor, and they couldn't find the cuttlefish, right, because they're able to camouflage themselves. And they, when they finally found them, they're at the top of their tank. They had, they'd completely, I don't know if they're translucent. Um, and the, the, they had one eye on following all of them, this new person. And they were able to, like, because they didn't trust this person, they were able to recognize human faces. And that was kind of a, a, a crazy thing. Um, and I definitely butchered that study, but John Mole, you'll back me up when you, whenever you find it. But I did, I did find it. It, it's, uh, it was a test designed to, uh, for cognitive recognition for human children and it, and it cuttlefish passed it. Yeah. So there, there's some wild things going on in the animal kingdom. And that's why, you know, people such as yourself are incredibly important. Um, cause you know, I definitely think, you know, as human beings, we have this notion that we're probably the smartest thing on the planet. And I'm not 100% convinced. You know, what makes us great is that we have, we're able to manipulate our environment. And there's very few species that are able to do that. You have the beaver. They're able to kind of change and manipulate their, their environment. And I'm sure there's a few others, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. But when you start thinking about like what's in the ocean and whales and the fact that they found languages in whales especially orcas and you know that was part of the the problem with these parks that would have orcas in that in there is they would start beating each other up or you know tearing each other apart when they figured out that they were speaking different languages and there's certain pods and i'm sure have rivals and so i'm, I'm wondering you know all, all that aside um, you know, on, on the, the goats, you said you were able to find, you know, different dialects 
um, with them, but like how much were they able to keep uh, the undulates that you've studied? Was it, is it just ghosts that you've studied? No, I've studied um, in terms of vocal expression of emotions, uh, domestic horses, Shevatsky's horses, pigs, uh, wild boars, sheep, and I think in cattle also. And, and cattle. Ooh, what did you find out with pigs? Because pigs are pretty smart too. Yeah, I mean, we were, again, it was not on their um, cognition. So in terms of proper like cognition tests, um, I've only done that on goats. Uh, we, we test if, how, what they can manipulate and how. Uh, so on pigs, it was on their vocal expression of emotions, and we basically carried out a pretty big study where we gathered lots of recordings um, in a collaboration between several teams, and we trained the machine learning algorithm to identify the um, emotion of the sounds, and the algorithm could classify 92% of the calls, so to tell us whether, whether the call was produced in a positive, emotionally positive or emotionally negative context. Okay, so okay, so what? How you had a you had a machine or an algorithm, right? A machine learning algorithm, yeah. correct? And, and and that was kind of how you studied it. And how would you get them to express, you know, either negative or positive emotions in this study? Yeah. So basically, um, we gathered all the recordings that we had in all the teams, which were um, from different contexts. For example, we had a team in Czech Republic working in piglets, so you had piglets um, in the farm being crushed by the mother, and that happens sometimes, or missed nursing or castration, which has to, which is part of the farm. Um, and then uh, also slaughterhouse recordings that we managed to get as eventually, and more put, that we classified all as negative because there's context that the pigs should avoid and will um, uh, threaten their life, basically. And so we had other positive contexts, which was um, um, together playing in a familiar environment or running in freely in a corridor or nursing or after nursing from the piglets. So the kinds of thing that would usually um, increase your uh, chance of survival and were thus labeled as uh, positive. And then we validated whether this was likely indeed positive or negative based on the behavior of the pigs. We also, for some uh, of the context, had the heart rate uh, to know how intense was the emotion. So we had their heart rate with a heart rate monitor. Um, and then we uh, produce a picture of the sounds and then train an algorithm to differentiate, uh, I mean, to recognize from the picture of the sounds um, which ones were negative or positive. And that's uh, feasible across all the contexts we had. Okay, okay. So, all right, you, you, you went to these places and recorded these sounds and then plugged that back into the algorithm? Essentially? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah so we, um, we were all teams that had been working on expression of um, emotions in peaks before, so we used existing recordings from previous studies and we collected new ones that we were missing, like the slaughterhouse or the more positive uh, context. And then we cut all these sounds out and then we um, fed them to the algorithm and trained the algorithm to identify these sounds. Oh, that's sweet. That's definitely, that's, that's pretty sweet. First, I think, I, yeah, I had that backwards for whatever reason. I, I was assuming you're that makes a lot more sense uh, as opposed to how I would have maybe set it up because <laughs> I, I may have played the sounds to the, to the pigs, but the, how, you know, how are you going to know, you know, or, or I don't know if you could have hooked something up like um, some sort of monitoring system. I don't, I don't know. It's not an EKG and then like studied like the different, um, you know, reactions in the brain. Um, and have there, have there been studies like that done? Uh, 
And I don't know about their uh, brain activity, but at least um, that's what we did also afterwards. So we played um, sounds of so sounds of pigs to pigs and sounds of uh, pigs to white balls. So we did this study where we uh, compared the cross species if they kind of perceive each other's emotions. Uh, so usually you would use a speaker and play back the sounds you recorded in a positive or negative context, and then see if you get some. Um, if first, if they differentiate between negative and positive sounds, and then also maybe. If there is contagion of emotions, that's what we call contagion. So if when you play negative sounds, they show behavior that indicates that they're in the negative emotions. And when you play positive sounds, they become, um, they, they are, um, they, they, they become in a, I mean, they, sorry, they experience positive emotions. Um, and so we played uh, pigs, wild balls, and human voice to the pigs and to the wild balls. And we did the same for domestic and Chevesky's horses. Um, and we see that they do react differently when you play them a uh, negative or positive sound, whatever species it is, except for the white balls. Ooh, wh so why, why not the white boars? Are you playing this? Are you playing white boars getting slaughtered? Or do you think that they might not be able? Are you, are you using... So you're using cross species, correct? In this in this study that we're talking about, yeah. Mm -hmm. and do you have any idea why the white boars weren't able to respond to to some of these sounds from other species? Do you have any a hypothesis on this? Um, I mean, so first, the sounds that we played them were um, so in this study, um, which differed from the previous peak study we were talking about. So we simply had contact calls. So everything we played was just simply grunts, like grunts, or for the horses, uh, whinnies. Uh, so we played them grunts that were either recorded in a short-term isolation, for example, for the domestic pigs, or in uh, when they were together foraging, which were, were positive grunts. Um, so they differed only really slightly. Even for human ear, ear, it's very hard to differentiate between the two. Um, and so we saw that they somehow, so the pigs, they reacted stronger when we played them negative um, sounds of either pigs or human or white ball, but for the white balls, they only reacted differently to the sounds of the pigs, which was a bit strange. Um, so it could be the context in which we played the sounds or it could be something else, but it was quite interesting because they reacted showing more negative behaviors to the positive pig sounds and vice versa with the um, negative pig sounds. Um, and it could be because they express emotions in a different way. So when we had compared in a previous study, how pigs and wild boars express emotions, we saw that they they have some parameters that change in the same way and others that are completely different. Um, so it could be that they, for wild boar, the positive uh, a positive pig sounds sound negative actually, maybe because of the domestication process or something else. Yeah, that's really interesting. That that's that's actually kind of that's kind of perplexing. It kind of throws a wrench in my thinking. I mean, because when you think about you know, wild boars and pigs, it doesn't take long for a pig to kind of, I don't know, John, maybe look that up too. I don't know how long it, I think it's, it's, it's very, very short. When, when a domestic pig is able to break out, they completely transform like into almost a different entity in a very short amount of time, start growing hair, they start growing tusks. So I would think that those two, you know, 
I don't know what causes that transmit, you know, I don't know what causes that transition, um, which would be honestly, I'm sure that's been studied, but I was going to say, I've, I've read that too, that they're also the, the shape of their nose goes from being like flat and stubby to long and like shaped like a trowel so they can dig. And if a, if that same pig or uh, previously domesticated pigs are re-domesticated, their body will change back to the kind of like white fuzzy uh you know normal pinky soft yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah, so that that, go ahead sorry they're very closely related um from what i remember they don't have the same number of uh, chromosomes exactly but they are extremely closely related yeah that's fascinating so what what other like kind of fields um are you do you think you'll end up staying in the behavioral or, you know, the emotional um, study of uh, the animal emotions through language uh, field? Or are you planning on, on, you know, branching out and studying other things? Well, actually, since um, so I moved to Copenhagen three years ago and I, I broadened a bit, um, I used to work mostly on um, domestic species or at least um, well, farm animals. And now um, we have access to also some um, um, animals in the wild. So I've taken over our, our giraffe project on giraffe social networks, for example. So I broadened quite a lot to other species. And now in the group, we have um, people working from whales to uh, parakeets. So we actually have all kinds of projects. Most of them are related to either vocal communication or social networks, so how animals interact with, with each other or uh, emotions or anything in between. So how vocalizations shape the network how um, emotions influence vocal communication, etc. Did you say you were studying giraffes? Yes. <laughs> what is the social network of a giraffe? Because I, I, I have to confess, I don't know a ton about giraffes, but from what I do know, I feel like they're not running in large herds uh, as something such as like a wildebeest or a cape buffalo. I feel like it's like a mom... And it's in its offspring. So what what would a social network of uh, a giraffe look like? Yeah, and it is quite surprising for um, ungulates. I find that they are they are very lonely. Like if you see them in the wild, I was in South Africa to the field site where we uh, send students, and we could always almost spot them alone or with their um, calves. Or I think one day they were suddenly in larger groups, but. Um, but so that's a project that was started by my uh, predecessor uh, since 2012. So we have this long-term project where we study the same population every year. Uh, we send students on there to take pictures of the giraffe and find out who is spotted with who. Um, and it was uh, beforehand, it was believed that they have a very loose system where you know you don't have proper stable groups. But actually, then they find out that they they do stick more with the particular individuals, especially females have more. Uh, long-term relationships, so they are more often spotted with uh, uh, the same females. Um, and this also changes with the season, so uh, when there is lots of food, or you have bigger groups, and also during the breeding season, so it changes throughout the year. Yeah, so, they, so they do have social networks. I didn't know, I really did not know that at all. I thought that, I really thought that from all the, you know, nature films I've watched as a kid, they were always just chilling by themselves it seems but that you are able to get them photo now how many individuals 
end up kind of gathering in these groups? What's the largest group that you guys were able to document? And then, you know, kind of as a follow-up question, are these social groups generally like, you know, uh, mom and the offspring that end up get, gathering and reuniting? I mean, the mom and offspring are, are I mean, usually always together. So when we uh, make these social networks, we exclude the calves because the calves, by definition, like for their mothers. Um, so you can find connections even when you exclude the calves. Um, but I can't remember the exact numbers of how big the, group, big the groups can be. But from what I remember seeing, it was around six adult individuals that we usually say that they are together when they are about 100 meters apart and um, walking in the same direction. Um, so it's quite, the groups can be quite uh, spread uh, if you want. So that's why maybe you, if you spot them just once, you might also sometimes not see that they're actually together and there is one hiding there and one a bit further, but they're actually um, hanging out if you want quite a distance. Now are the males, are they, do they have social networks as well, or are they pretty much loners? Uh, they're much more lonely than the females, but they will look for females during the, um, the breeding season, so they will start to join uh, female groups. Okay, okay. Because, I mean, I think about, like, let's see. Well, I'm, on the male, before the breeding season, do they generally pair up in, like, bachelor groups? You know? Uh... I can't remember, I have to admit. Oh, no worries. They do no, no. no worries at all. And then you said you had um, some of your, uh, some of the, some some people on your team are studying whales. Um, how are they? Are they have they are they studying you know the 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 emotions that whales produce and, and what types of uh, whales are they looking into? Uh, not the emotions, by the way. That's much harder to to do. Um, it's a PhD student who works more on their energetics, so he put. Um, you know, these big, uh, nowadays we have these, uh, so much technology that we can have tags to put on the whales. So um, it's a tag that can both record um, a video and an acoustic recording and, and follow the whales. So measure all kinds of things about what the whale is doing, how deep and how much it turns around, how fast it goes. Um, and so he's he's been mainly looking at broods whales, they're called, um, from South Africa and in Brazil as well. Um, looking at how they hunt, like the different strategies they use um, during lunges, you know, like a lunge is when they go very deep and then they go up very fast with their mouth open to catch as much fish as they can. Um, and he's been looking at whether uh, we can find different lunges, um, if different whales use different strategies and and uh, and he's interested in how energetically costly these different lunges are, etc. Oh, wow. Wow. Do you, do you say how... Can you repeat that last part for me? Uh, so he's interested in um, in looking at how energetically costly uh, different uh, hunting strategies are. Oh, that's fascinating. That's yeah. I wouldn't. I don't. That's kind of curious. What I'm kind of trying to figure out why. Um, you know, he's interested in the energy that they're expending on their, their hunting strategy. Like what, what, what's the, the interest there? I, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason. I just can't, it's not making sense in my head for whatever reason. I mean, the, I guess the, the main aim would be to, you know, um, whales are all quite threatened and, um, and when you have boats around or if you have noise, you can, um, I think he's mostly originally interested in, in how much we impact on the whales. Um, and so, 
um, if there is no not enough fish around, if there is noise, maybe they cannot communicate um, and find uh, the, their preys or if they use the noise of the preys, if you have uh, lots of uh, anthropogenic noise around, they might not be able to hunt um, as they want. Um, and also, um, yeah, knowing in general, so how, why do they develop different strategies in different parts of the world? Uh, the world? For example, in Brazil, they, um, they are there all year round, but then I think in the population he studied before in South Africa, they are not there all year round. So he's interested to see um, why is it different in different parts of the world? Do they use the same strategy to feed or not? And see. Okay, that yeah, that that's is starting uh, making sense, right? I think of like there's certain pods of orcas, let's say, in the Arctic that will have figured out a strategy to they'll they'll go in a let's say a group like four or five wide and there'll be a seal on a an ice not an iceberg but a block of ice and they'll they'll go really really fast and create a wave to knock the seal off of that uh you know that what did i just say not an iceberg but like a block of ice right just floating in the sea and that was one strategy that people have observed so Thank you so much for the the clarification there. Uh, that's super fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I, I definitely love whales, and I don't. I need to. I, I definitely am more more interested in like whales or like uh, orcas and uh, you know dolphins. I actually was just in Alaska and was able to see um, a few humpbacks. And uh, what, what was the most surprising thing was I ended up seeing a few dolphins. I had no idea that they were that far north i i always uh refer to dolph uh, thought of dolphins as being more tropical creatures but that was super cool um if you ever get a chance head head up to alaska yeah that sounds nice <laughs> yeah it's fantastic so uh, i want to kind of get back into you you said you you studied um horses uh d domestic horses correct yes. and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know kind of did, was it the same type of uh Using sound, same same study that you ran on the horses you did on the pigs and the 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 skylarks. Yeah, so I um, I looked at uh, their vocal expression of emotions. Um, then we also played uh, the sounds. They were part of this study where we this cross study species where we played them. So for the domestic horses, we played them. Chevalsky's horse, um, Winnie's, which are very similar in human voice, um, human actor's voice to see if they differentiate between positive and negative emotions. Um, and the very interesting thing about horses uh, that I figured out when I started uh, looking at horses is that they, um, they do biphonations. That's basically producing two frequencies at the same time. So when you hear a horse, you kind of have the feeling that you hear two horses at the same time. Um, and it's very rare. Uh, so, I mean, mammals do it a lot, but very sporadically, you know, when a baby is screaming and then you hear this kind of two sounds because the vocal folds get um, decoupled, that's called. Um, but in the horses, they basically, in all the weenies, you have one low uh, pitch and one high pitch. And they, um, they produce them at the same time. So now I have a student actually who's looking at where are they produced in the vocal tract and how. And, and what, are the, what is the function of these two frequencies? Yeah, what, what are some of the hypotheses for the function of these two you know, frequencies? Um, so in the first study I've done where, we, where we're looking at emotions, probably they also provide different kinds of information, but um, we had found that the lowest one indicates how intense is the emotion, um, and the highest one indicates 
uh, whether the emotion is positive or negative, which is what we call the valence. Um, and probably they encode all, they also encode probably other kinds of information, but that was interesting to see that they um, separate. Uh, so that's what we call segregation of information. So one frequency indicates something and the other one indicates something else. So they probably they, they have developed that to be able to communicate more information than with just one frequency. That's pretty cool. Is that is that unique to that's just unique to horses so far as you can tell, right? I mean, in, in birds, birds do that a lot um, because they have a different um, um, organ to produce sounds and they can actually produce very easily produce two different sounds at the same time. Uh, so that's known for, for birds. But for mammals, um, there are a few species that have shown biphonation, um, but very often it's more sporadic, like I mentioned. Like I think all mammals produce biphonation at some point when they, for example, scream or um, call very loud, but not uh, systematically like horses. That's so cool. Now, this is primarily in um, domesticated horses. Have you looked at uh, wild horses are doing this as well? Yeah, so the Shevaskis horses, they have very similar structure and they also have these two frequencies. Um, and actually, we were, uh, we've were we been looking also at students doing some small project trying to look at um, at donkeys and mules, and uh, I also have a PhD student working on don on, uh, on zebras. And so far, the mules, it was not really clear because we didn't find in enough individuals, but donkeys don't have bite phonation and zebras either. So it seems to be something very specific to horses. That is pretty fascinating. And uh, you would, I would expect that you would find that in mules as well, potentially, because a, a mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey. So I would assume that that would, that would wind up. Uh, is that, and you, you haven't been able to find enough individuals um, yet, but um, of the individuals that you have found, have you noticed that? Yeah, so far the recordings we got were not um, good enough, so we couldn't spot by phonation, but I have another student trying to find mules at the moment, so we'll soon find out. But they, they probably should have because they're, Coal is really a mix between a donkey and a horse, so they have this kind of breathing in and out, and sometimes it sounds more like a whinny, and sometimes it sounds more like a, a donkey sound. Yeah, I don't know what you'd call that donkey sound either. A bray, <laughs> I think. <laughs> a bray, yeah, that, yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. This, okay, all right. So that, I mean, I, I really, I'm loving this work, and, and it's very exciting to kind of, I didn't, you know, I'm, when John came to me and, and, and let me know that this was being studied, I had no idea that, you know, there was this section of study in biology. So this, is, this has been very, very interesting for me to, to kind of dive in here. There's a lot that I don't know. I'm definitely not a trained scientist, but I really love this work. And I mean, when, when, when it, when, in terms of the future and the future studies, like what, what most excites you, you know, going forward in, 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 the, in this field that you're studying? Um, I, would, I would say at the moment, um, yeah, so the, the student working in horses, he's very close to find out where these um, two frequencies are being produced. So that's quite exciting. Um, he's actually on the side, been looking also at whether we can um, use a machine learning algorithm to um, classify positive and negative emotions of all the species are recorded at the same time as a kind of universal translator. <laughs> um, so that's also quite exciting. Um, and we are trying to look more into the um, 
contagion side that we were talking about before. So how emotions are spread within a group. So, for example, I have a postdoc doing that on sheep. We're trying to kind of map, you know, like when you play a sound to sheep, uh, um, uh, high and more intense or less intense um, call, then how does the information spread in the group and how does the emotion affect the other, uh, the other animals? Now, how, how would one, like, what do you think some of the applications would be for this contagion? Like, I, like how would you apply this, if that question makes sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there are many applications. The, um, I mean, the, the applications for the uh, production side, you have many already because you can build an app or a tool. That's what we're planning to do on the peaks um, that would record the animals and uh, and tell you if the animal is more likely in a positive emotional state or negative emotional state. And for the contagion, if we can find um, calls that have an effect on the animals, then you could likely play positive calls to put the animals in a more positive state or in a farm when you need to have a procedure that stresses them a bit because you need to, I don't know, cut their hooves or something that you need to do or a medical intervention. Maybe you can find calls that relax them. Um, so some people have been trying to use music, for example, but music is very um, human-like. You know, you need to find something that is relevant for them. So, for example, playing sounds of... Um, Relaxed sounds of any, any other animals. It would, if it would make them re- more relaxed, then that would be very useful. Yes, yes, that would be, be. My mind always goes to the nefarious when you say contagions. Like, what are the? <laughs> it always goes to the, the the negative side of things. I wasn't thinking about that, but <laughs> um, that okay. That's that's super. And then, so how are have you guys started developing this, this? You know, the app or the tool yet, or do you still needing more data? Uh, no, we have enough data, but we still need to somehow meet with uh, all my colleagues and decide which direction do we take. Do we um, uh, or go for just an app on the phone or do we get for um, an actual on-farm tool that could record the sounds and, uh, and analyze everything? And uh, yeah, and so we didn't need to decide like who do we um, go for, like what do we go for and, and, and how. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, I mean... Again, I I uh, I'm very excited, and I, I can't wait. Uh, I mean, w- like, what do you think? Kind of the timeline is for the you know the creation of this tool. Um, I know that's it's that's kind of a hard question to ask because you know there's a lot of variables in play here. But like, when you know, ideally, when you like to have this out by. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say because we're um, like the team of collaborators from many different countries and we're all uh, people very busy with teaching and all kinds of things other than, than that and other projects. So, so far we haven't been able to uh, to talk together and decide what do we do? Do we apply for more funding? Do we just um, contact a company? So what do we do? But um, I think once we have decided, um, there are some easy options that would be take a few months um, so I don't know, I would hope that by next year or so we can um, first publish the, the, the calls we had as an open database for research and also uh, build some kind of app or tool for farmers. Yeah, so primarily, for, do you think any use um, for in the, in the veterinarian field? I feel like that would be, to me, that seems like the most uh, app, uh, you know, a good place for this application, but also farms as well. Yeah, so this one would be for for pigs could be valid for um, 
yeah, farmers in general, also veterinarians, also people assessing the welfare on farm, uh, inspectors, for example, it could be for, could have lots Ooh. of different applications. Yeah, I didn't think about, you know, if you're, you're you know, going out there and um, accessing the welfare on farms, that would be, you could have an app that um, could kind of judge whether the animals are being mistreated or not. So, um that's 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 fascinating. Well, I I mean I I want to be respectful of your time. I'm wondering, you know, are you do you have any social media? Do you have any books out there that uh, you know people could read, or you know, kind of how do how do people get in contact or, or learn more about this? Um, they could have a look at our um, group website, for example, to see the different projects we um, we work on and all our publications and and find links to our press releases or other things. All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we will drop, we'll put all that in uh, the show notes. Um, Again, I I really respect, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast and I've had a blast. There's a lot, a lot of interesting applications and, and definitely, you know, when that app gets out, we'll definitely have you back on and and, and kind of go over that. But again, thank you so much. And and you, you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for inviting me. Have a nice day. 